Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. At the beginning of this season, we talked about women in Liberia standing up against a dictator in the midst of a brutal civil war, risking their lives to demand peace. We also talked about Iran, where right now men and women are being killed for their activism in demanding civil rights. All over the world, at various times throughout history, there have been instances of everyday people choosing to put their lives on the line to stand up against patriarchal violence. So what gives them the courage and ability to rise up effectively? Today, we're going to explore this issue by talking about the violent conflict in Colombia. And to guide us in today's discussion, I'm excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Julia Zolver, author of the book, High Risk Feminism in Colombia, Women's Mobilization in High Risk Contexts. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Amy. So lovely to meet you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited to discuss this book. And we'll start off by just me reading your professional bio, and then I'll ask you to introduce yourself a little bit more personally. Dr. Julia Zolver is a feminist researcher studying women's mobilization in communities affected by conflict and violence in Latin America. She is passionate about gender justice and uses academic research, advocacy, and commentary to draw attention to and support women's rights. Her doctoral thesis at Oxford University was titled High-Risk Feminism in Colombia, Women's Mobilization in High-Risk Contexts," which I mentioned before. This is a book that we'll be discussing today. And her master's degree project similarly focused on feminist mobilization in gang-controlled zones in El Salvador. In these theses, she developed a framework, high-risk feminism, that provides a lens through which to study women's mobilization, resilience, and agency. It allows for a nuanced reading of women as survivors, activists, and feminists in contexts of high risk. So a super important and really interesting study that you've done, it sounds like, for several years now, and this is what you work on. So I'm so excited to learn more, but could you introduce us to yourself first? Tell us where you're from and about some of the things that make you who you are and bring you to the work that you do. Absolutely. So thanks again for having me. I'm Julia Zolfer. I'm originally Canadian, although I grew up in New Zealand and Canada, and I spent uh, some time in the UK doing doing my studies. But I, I lived for on and off for the last eight years all around Latin America. So I did a year of university exchange in Mexico. I was then in Colombia on and off for many years. I worked in El Salvador for my master's thesis, and I, I just was there last week, actually. So I'm excited to chat a little bit more about that. And now I'm based here at the UNAM, the National University in Mexico, in Mexico City, where I'm running a three-year project looking at women's leadership in particular. So what it means to be not only a member of a high-risk organization, but actually one of the women leaders of those organizations. So that study is going to be more comparative. It's going to expand on the work I've done in El Salvador and Colombia. It includes field work I'm doing in Mexico. It'll include other work throughout Central America. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And oh, how did I come to do the work I do? I'm not sure. I think I've always been interested in not just conflict, not just war, not just these post-conflict moments, but sort of how people and women in particular choose and decide to contest their violent surroundings. So when things are bleak, when things are violent, when 
when it's difficult uh, in your everyday life to, to have a normal life or to feel safe, how do people choose to make these really brave decisions to protect themselves and their communities, even when that doesn't look like a rational decision at first glance? And that's just something that's always interested in me. It inspires me. The women that I work with are incredible. Uh, brave really is the word that comes to mind. And so just understanding how that bravery manifests that has always been the the center of my work. So Latin America is a place I first came to do that exchange in Mexico. And I realized as I began to do field work here that there are all of these examples of incredible women doing incredibly brave things. And so I wanted to understand that more in the book project and now also in the research project I'm running out of the now. Well, speaking of brave women, the the first question I wanted to ask you actually isn't the topic of your book, and we'll spend most of the time talking about Colombia and your book. But I did want to talk about El Salvador a little bit just because I have a personal interest in it. When I was doing my master's degree, a classmate of mine did a, a big project on gender-based violence in the gangs of El Salvador, specifically in the capital in San Salvador. And I speak Spanish, so I helped her translate the interviews that she was doing. She was interviewing her high school students. She's a high school teacher, and she was interviewing these high school students who had fled El Salvador for asylum in the United States, and they ended up in California in her classroom. And I was translating these interviews that were so incredibly like upsetting the circumstances that they were coming from and then so inspiring these girls bravery and courage and what they had had to go through and so i just wanted to ask you because i know you have experience and expertise in this area too if you can tell us just a little bit about the situation in el salvador absolutely so it was very interesting to go back to San Salvador almost exactly 10 years after I had been there doing my research for my master's thesis in 2013. And particularly because I was able to catch up with some of the people um, I'd spoken to 10 years ago, some of the women from different civil society organizations that I had been interviewing. And a lot has changed. And I think what's interesting is that 10 years ago, these women's organizations were really talking about this extreme violence in the context of gang control of, of multiple neighborhoods. Um, gangs in those neighborhoods want complete control, complete power. They operate in many ways on logics where women living in the territories and communities where they live are seen as property. There is a huge phenomenon of women and girls in particular being chosen or selected for these non-consensual relationships. So to become a gang member's girlfriend, there are high, high rates of gender-based violence, including sexual violence. And El Salvador is one of the countries that continues to have the highest rates of feminicide in the world. And now, 10 years later, we have a different government in power in El Salvador. And what we see is that he's put in a state of exception that just allows the government to put gang members or people who are accused of having connections with gangs uh, into jails. And so he has, he and his government have arrested around 60,000 people in the last year. And in theory, this means that a lot of gang members are no longer on the streets. And so the, the neighborhoods that were formerly so, so dangerous because of gang control are no longer as dangerous. 
And that is true in some senses. And in other senses, the violence and particularly the violent attacks against women have changed. And so speaking with women in human rights uh, organizations and civil society organizations and women's rights organizations, they're particularly concerned because the government also has uh, a real problem with these civil society organizations. They try to shut them down. They try to quieten their voices because these organizations really are talking about the human rights abuses that are taking place in this state of exception. One of the other things that a lot of the women noted, not only about themselves as human rights defenders, but also about women living in these previously gang-occupied neighborhoods, is that now there's a lot of violence from the police and the army who have very wide range to put people in jail, knowing that there isn't due process because these people don't have to go, they don't get their time in court right now um, because it's an exceptional state. Uh, So there are a lot of threats, for example, against women. I heard about that, you know, if you don't sort of do what I want as the policeman or as the soldier, well, we're going to put you in jail is the threat. And so there's that kind of power dynamic going on. And then also you see different kinds of violence. So women's organizations are clear that not all of the violence uh, against women in these neighborhoods came from gangs. There's also very high rates of uh, inter-partner violence, of family violence, of domestic violence. And so not tackling the root causes of uh, that gender-based violence means that although a lot of gang members are in jail now, although not all, that that isn't necessarily going to stop what's happening in terms of um, the violence that women experience in those neighborhoods and then the violence or lack of response that they receive when they go to government institutions that are supposed to prevent and respond to that violence. So what I can say, you know, it was just a, a quick visit to sort of re-educate myself and, and I'll be going back. But the what I did see is that patterns of, of violence um, have shifted perhaps, but haven't gone away. But also that even in this very stressful, very repressive context, that women's organizations are continuing to do amazing work. Again, kind of going back to that theme of brave women, they're doing it as well as they can. They're trying to protect themselves and their colleagues uh, as best they can, but the, the work continues. And so that for me is is really something to to focus on, that resistance to the, the oppressive um, and repressive context. Mm-hmm. Wow. What you said about Police violence not only reminded me of what we're going to talk about in Colombia, too, where it's endemic, where you find these attitudes in in lots of different organizations, but also one of the things that these students talked about in this study on El Salvador was also sexual violence from teachers at school. And like it was so common for male teachers to require that their female students sleep with them for good grades. And so, you know, in in order to do well in school, to provide a good life for themselves, they were finding themselves having to have sexual relationships with these men in power. And so, yeah, that that came to my mind, as you said, if it doesn't address the root, then it just finds another form, right? That kind of that attitude of male ownership of women's bodies. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I mean, that checks out what you're saying about kind of that sexual violence in the school environment checks out. Violence kind of transforms and mutates, but it's very much based in this patriarchal structure whereby violence is acceptable. And that's because of impunity and corruption, but also, frankly, because 
there isn't the effort in practice. I mean, there is in paper and women's organizations managed to pass in 2012 an amazing comprehensive law against violence against women. But if it's not being put into practice, you know, it's, it's hard to see that make real changes in society. But again, my focus in my research, I, I try to focus both on the context of what's happening and the patterns of violence that are happening, but also on resistance to that violence, which I mm-hmm. think is kind of where we can see those bright spots or moments of hope in terms of, you know, enacting change in the long run. Wonderful. Okay, well, let's shift gears, shift locations to Colombia. And I'm wondering if you can kind of set the stage for us by talking about the violent context that has existed in Colombia. Maybe most people will be familiar with, if if we're familiar with Colombia, we think of Pablo Escobar, or we think of the drug war. So if you can kind of set the scene for us, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So the conflict in Colombia is very long running and includes those characters you were talking about, but it extends quite a long way before then. So the Colombian conflict, as we generally refer to it now, is one moment of conflict. But the way we usually talk about it is a conflict that began between the government and rural peasants in the 1960s around land reform. So Colombia is incredibly unequal in terms of who holds political power, social power, economic power. This is something that remains to date, but in the 1960s, kind of came to a head and different guerrilla organizations began to form in the countryside asking for land redistribution. So organizations that listeners may have heard to like the FARC or the ELN were born with this kind of Marxist-Leninist idea of wealth redistribution, um, of land redistribution, so that there would be more equality in society. And there have been different moments in the conflict. So through the 60s and 70s, the actors were largely these left-wing groups versus the government. And then the left-wing groups started to try to take away land from large landowners. So landowners started to arm themselves with these paramilitary groups who were supported in different ways by the government. So we have these right-wing paramilitary groups who are brutally fighting left-wing communist and socialist groups with the involvement of the government as well. Kind of overlaid on top of that, Colombia does produce cocoa, which is used to make cocaine, which is transported northwards to North America. And so all of the different parties started to get involved in the drug industry or the drug economy in that way, in some cases to fund themselves, and in other cases just to make money. And so You have these different actors fighting each other in different moments. Drugs also comes into it. Land very much continues to be part of it. And one of the real kind of heightened moments of the conflict where we look and see that statistics show huge numbers of homicides of different kinds of violence, so disappearances, sexual violence, um, physical violence, kidnapping, is in the 90s, uh, leading up to the, the late 90s into the early 2000s. Between 2005 and 2007, that particular paramilitary group went through a demobilization process. That demobilization process was flawed, and a lot of those actors uh, kind of rearmed in different groups, drug trafficking groups, narco groups, groups who are engaging in the trafficking of illegal minerals and who are still fighting uh, for that social and territorial control with other groups. So the conflict has continued in 2016, which I know we're going to talk about, there was a big peace deal signed between the FARC and the government. So that means that the FARC did demobilize. However, 
different armed groups are continuing to vie for control of territory up until the present day in Colombia. So kind of really short version, many different groups on the left and the right fighting each other largely for this dominance in different parts of the country. So one of the themes that you talk about in your book a lot, and that has come up a lot in this season of the podcast too, is that violence affects women in a different way than it affects men. And it affects all people, regardless of gender, really negatively, of course. But because you you think about and study women, can you just talk about kind of that theme of how this violence has affected women specifically? Definitely. So violence impacts women and girls in different ways because of their gender. So because of these socially constructed roles that they have in society. And as I was talking about El Salvador before, within a patriarchal system, um, women have less power, generally speaking, political power, social power, economic power. And so there are some ways that women are directly impacted by violence. So in the Colombian conflict, violence against women was used as a strategy of war. So the different armed groups in particular would go into different communities and they would use sexual violence, they would use homicidal violence, they would use different kinds of violence to try to control women's bodies as a part of the territory. You know, we've moved into this town, women are part of this town, part of what we now own, and so we can use violence against their bodies to put them into submission to put the men into submission as well if they're, you know, kind of using violence against people's wives, partners, girlfriends, daughters, family members. There are also less direct ways that violence in this conflict impacts women. So when you have so many men being killed or forcibly displaced, you have women being left alone now as heads of families who have to not only take care of children, but also make money, engage in economic activities that can take care of the family. Women are often put into those roles of having to do the double work of taking care of their families and also protecting them from violence and doing the cooking, cleaning, educating, housework. So there are ways that violence has directly impacted women in terms of strategy, war strategy, but also in many indirect ways, particularly in terms of women who end up being forced to flee their homes uh, and also take care of their families. Okay, so one of the parts of the book that I wanted to zoom in on was La Liga de Mujeres Desplazadas, which means displaced women. And that speaks directly to what you were just talking about, right? Like I, when these, I'm imagining when these uh, violent groups moves into an area, women and families are going to flee, right? And especially if men have been killed, then you have a lot of specifically women and children fleeing, going to a different place. So can you talk about these displaced women, what happened to them, and then how they managed to make a place for themselves after they became displaced by the war. So the women from the Liga de Mujeres Desplazadas were displaced from all over the north coast in Colombia, so all over the Caribbean coast. And they came together in one of the major cities, which is called Cartagena, which uh, some of the listeners may know as a touristy, really beautiful city. But outside of the historical center, it really was this hub for displaced people to come together in a slum known as El Pozón. And the conditions in El Pozón were horrible. It was dangerous. There were other armed groups there. Women were experiencing different kinds of vulnerabilities because of extreme weather, because of not having access to houses or resources. 
And so they began to come together and meet each other and realize as they started to chat that they had all suffered similar kinds of violence that had led to their displacement. And in one moment, a woman, Patricia Guerrero, showed up in El Pozón and began to ask these women to come together. She began to talk to them about their situations, not only as something uncomfortable that had happened to them or something bad that had happened to them, but actually using this women's rights language and this human rights language, and actually with using the language of victims' rights in Colombia. And so she began to talk to them about how they had these shared experiences and how if they united, they could start to, to work on projects that might actually make their lives better, that might bring some more safety and some dignity, frankly, to their lives. And so the women began to share. They started meeting, bringing their friends. More and more of them would come to these meetings. And, and again, learn about these experiences that had happened to them, not only in terms of something awful, something traumatic, but to frame them in terms of uh, these violences being part of a broader strategy of war. And so as they begin to, to generate this collective identity, this group identity, they decided that what they really wanted and what would really restore dignity in their lives would be to have a home that there was their own, a safe home. And so with the help of Patricia Guerrero, they began to look for resources. And eventually, through her, they found project money through a USAID project to build the city of women, La Ciudad de las Mujeres. And the idea of this city was that it was going to be a place for women and their children to have homes, to be safe, and not to have to worry about these gender-based violences in the context of war. So they bought a piece of land outside the city in, a, in an area called Turbaco, They uh, learned how to do some of the work themselves. They hired others. They learned how to, to become builders, to become planners. And they built the city of women, which is around a hundred little houses, you know, four or five blocks that for the women represents this, this sign of peaceful resistance, but also a place where they can live their lives despite all of these violences that they faced in the context of the armed conflict. It's really incredible to read about that. And then I had a question if when they're living in this, the city of women, if they're going to be kind of basically left alone, are they going to be safe and protected there or what happens next? And I wondered if you can talk about whether, whether these women were allowed to just live peacefully there. So sadly, not really. Creating these homes in itself and creating this collective space does make the women feel safer. With that said, they still have been targeted by other armed groups over the years. So as they were building the city, they faced, you know, stalking attacks. Different paramilitary groups would drive by and try and threaten them so that they didn't build. Because again, these armed groups want complete control of the territories that they occupy. And so having this example of social cohesion of women taking a stand and building a safe place doesn't really fit in with the narrative that they want of, of being the, the bosses in town. And so actually really sadly, Even during the construction process, one of the women's husbands who was guarding the brick factory at that point, Don Julio, was murdered. There were cases of stalkings, there were cases of rapes, and there have been ongoing kind of cases of violence and violent actors coming into this small community and trying to use violence against the women and now their kids. 
So it's not necessarily a safe place if we're talking about the ability to to prevent or the kind of the ability to live in a, a place without any violence. But it's still what it represents. And the fact that these women are together and this physical space that belongs to women does make them feel safer, kind of given a broader context of, of armed conflict. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I was really struck by in this chapter was not only that the women were able to build their own city, feel relatively a lot safer, but that also they were educating themselves and pushing for structural reform and legal reform. Could you talk about that a bit? Absolutely. So that's another one of the strategies that Patricia Guerrero really encouraged uh, for these women, not only to build this city and to engage in that project, but also to make demands for the state to to be responsible for the laws that it has in place. And so she really encouraged them to learn these different laws, these different constitutional court sentences, really educate themselves legally speaking so that they could start to push for the ability to enjoy those rights. Some of the the constitutional courts uh, sentences, for example, came directly from the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, which talks about how women live uh, contexts of war differently and talks about how states who've signed on need to protect and take care of women. So the Liga uh, engaged in a number of different processes to to get the state to make good on its promises. And when it didn't, for example, they were able to take the state to the Inter-American Commission and then Court on Human Rights to get special protection measures. And now, in since 2011, when Colombia put its transitional justice laws into practice, they've also applied for individual and collective reparations for the damages that they've suffered. So, using this language of the state so that the state cannot ignore you as a victim was a really specific and deliberate tactic that they used as part of their mobilization. Really inspiring. Another subject that I'd love to have you talk about is a different group. And this was a group called Afro-Mupas. So can you tell us what that stands for and who made up this group? Where are they from and what violence had they endured? Absolutely. So Afro-Mupas is a shortened name for a name in Spanish, which is Afro-Women for Peace. This group of women was displaced from the Pacific coast of Colombia, so largely from the Choco Department, where we saw another theater of war in Colombia's armed conflict. These women came to Bogota, which is the country's capital city, and really were suffering not only some of the violences and, and precarities of being displaced women in a new city, which is very different in terms of the climate, in terms of the culture from the Pacific coast, but also because the majority of these women are Afro-Colombian, so they're Black women, and they faced not only gendered prejudices, but also racist prejudices. And in this context, a woman named Maria Eugenia Urrutia came uh, together with some other organizers and began to note these specific needs, not only of the Black community, not only of displaced women, but also of displaced Black women in particular. And so she put together this organization to meet those specific gendered and racialized needs of her community. She herself was a displaced woman. And so Afro Mopas was born in the late 90s as 
she she decided that she needed to to organize these women so that they could start to to come together to make projects to make demands on the government but primarily to seek some kind of safe space within a very hostile new environment for them and what kind of pushback did she get from men after she began organizing these black colombian women I think it's in the case, all of the the cases in the book and all of the cases I've worked with, that there is pushback from men who see that women participating in this very political way, although it's within civil society spaces, are transgressing the norms of what women are supposed to do. So going back to some of that logic, even of what the armed groups see as women's roles, being in the home, cooking, cleaning, taking care of kids that's something that's fairly widespread in terms of these gender norms in Colombia. And so women coming out and starting to be vocal about their particular needs and their particular demands is not seen as a proper way for women to behave. Maria Eugenia also had a particularly horrific experience when some of the armed groups who were operating in Usme, the part of Bogota where she had the headquarters for, for Afromupas, uh, kidnapped her and took her to uh, a different location outside of the city and used sexual violence against her in, a, in an attempt to make her shut up and to make her stop kind of drawing attention to the ongoing violences in Usme, particularly around child recruitment into narco-trafficking groups, but more broadly as a way to, to silence this woman who was behaving in a way that women shouldn't be behaving. However, even after she she was able to, to escape, she was able to leave this horrific kidnapping situation and go through some moments of personal healing, she decided that it was now more important than ever to keep raising her voice and to keep working with the women of Afrimupas. And so despite another experience of, of horrific conflict-related violence, she really decided to continue to, to push this gender justice agenda in her community. Yeah, I was so, so inspired by her story. Uh, one last question that I wanted to ask you about her was, I thought it was a really interesting conversation about feminism. And this is something, again, that's that's come up over and over again on the podcast. This is something that I'm really hoping that that listeners are learning from so many episodes that talk about white feminism and United States-centric white feminism. Can you tell us about the the conversation about kind of the the definition of feminist and how did Maria Eugenia um, answer that? Yeah, that was an interesting conversation. I'm, I'm glad I was able to, to write about it because it was, it was uncomfortable in some ways. I mean, mm-hmm. I am, um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm Canadian. I'm, I come from a, a white British background and, and she and her organization are really kind of based not only in a particular version of what women's rights mean, but also what black women's rights mean for them. And the intersection of race and gender is so important and really can't be separated. And so in the, the conversation you're referring to, I was asking about her organization and all of the women's rights work that she was doing. And I said, well, you know, do you consider yourself a feminist? And she said, and, and you'll have to read the book for the exact wording, but to paraphrase, she kind of said, well, yeah, we're feminists, but we're feminists with the body and face of a woman. We're not feminists who wear suits 
and kind of looked at me and I wasn't wearing a suit. I don't wear suits generally, particularly on field work, but she really was drawing that distinction that you mentioned. She was looking at me. We were still getting to know each other and saying, I don't know what kind of feminism you ascribe to, but if it's white, liberal, Western feminism, that's not what we do. That's not what it means for us. And feminism, as I mentioned for Afra Mubas, really is at this intersection of being a Black woman from a rural environment and the realities of what that entails, those intersections of geography, of race, of gender, and how those are relational within their communities. And so for her, this kind of feminism in the face and body of a woman is deeply located at that cross point of those different forces of oppression that the women she works with have suffered. And that might not look at face value like the kind of feminism that she thought I was talking about. But it it was a really humbling and, and important experience for me to think about using that word feminism when in a country like Colombia, it is a loaded term in the Latin American region more broadly, feminism can still be a dirty word or still, you know, imply kind of man hating or still imply this transgression of gender norms that I I was mentioning before, whether or not that's the reality clearly isn't true, but using that word is a, is a political decision and it, and it has a lot of weight and a lot of meaning um, involved in it. And so even calling the book high risk feminism came after a lot of discussions with a lot of different groups who felt differently about me using that descriptor for the work they were doing, even though for me, their real focus on women's political empowerment, economic empowerment, ability to get justice for gender-based crimes is what feminism is at, at, its, at its essence. So, you know, the, the title was part of a conversation and it is also a provocation as well. It's something that I've discussed widely, for example, last year when I presented the book in Spanish in in Bogota, when I took it back and then did the book launch, that was one of the themes we really spoke about, is this feminism? Do we want to call it feminism? And so from an academic point of view, I'm happy to make that provocation, happy to, to inspire the debate, but but it is a debate. And so it's not a word that we can necessarily apply to an organization like Abramupas or, for example, the Alianza de Mujeres Tejedores de Vida, who, who we may talk about in a bit, or, or if we don't, it's, it's in the conclusion of the book. So a little plug to go and read it. They feel differently about using that term, for example, than Patricia Guerrero does, who very firmly and openly embraces the term. So it's a bit of a mixed bag there, but it's, it's something that, that needs to be part of a conversation. Yes. And and I'm so glad. That's why I'm so glad you wrote about it and that you were really transparent about it being an uncomfortable conversation, because I think that hopefully inspires other people to be willing to feel uncomfortable and have the conversations too, because it is complicated and something that we're all learning together, hopefully, through through these debates and through these uh, just being willing to ask and then listen to what other people have to say about it. Okay. One more group that I was hoping that you would highlight for us is the community of La Soledad. So could you tell us about La Soledad and how this community was different from the other two that we just talked about and what you learned from those differences? The community of La Soledad is a really interesting one. And La Soledad isn't isn't the real name. They asked me if I could change the name because the security situation that they are continuing to live is 
one that they didn't want to, to expose kind of using their names. What was very interesting about this community, which is in La Guajira, which is a province right next to the Venezuelan border, also on the, the Caribbean coast, is that it's also home to a big group of displaced women who meet a lot of the basic demographic characteristics that the other organizations I worked with meet or, or have. So they're similar socioeconomic backgrounds, similar ages, similar ethnic and racial makeup. They have a similar background to, for example, the Liga de Mujeres Desplazadas, speaking ethnically and racially. They've got similar literacy levels, similar family formations in terms of kids and husbands or, or lack of husbands. But what I found was that there isn't this high-risk feminist organizing in the same way as I found in other parts of the country. And so the question was, well, why, when there are the same populations of women, are we not seeing, and in similar contexts of violence, why are we not seeing the similar kind of resistance? And what I found through spending time with a loose, kind of loose organization of women there is that leadership is incredibly important. And so I've spoken about Patricia Guerrero and I've spoken about Maria Eugenia Urrutia in, in Bogota. And they, their leadership has been absolutely key. Their charismatic leadership has been incredibly key in terms of taking women who felt very isolated by the situations of violence that they've lived, showing them that they've shared these situations, that it's not an individual thing, that it wasn't their fault, but that it was part of a broader strategy of war, helping them to build these collective identities and then use those identities to push for change or to push for reparation or to push for uh, different projects. And what I saw in La Soledad is that even though there was a leader who was an amazing woman and, and a really inspiring woman, she didn't have that vision in the same way. She didn't have the same way of telling these women who perhaps in other contexts may have been convincible when it comes to mobilizing, that it was worth their while to expose themselves to some of the extra risk associated with being part of one of these organizations. She didn't really have that legal framing. So she didn't know enough about the law or she didn't know who to be in touch with to use that language of the state, the laws of the state, to push the state institutions to comply with legally what they're supposed to, the, the responsibilities that they have to their citizens. She didn't really have the ability to do any projects for women or with any kind of gender focus on them. And so what we see is that though while while there were women who would occasionally meet, spend time together, talk, rely on each other in a very kind of practical way, that it didn't move on to become an organization that really represents this gendered resistance in the same way that the Liga or Afromupas or even the Alianza do. And so what it shows us in, in the inverse or kind of by through reflection is that this role of the charismatic leader is incredibly important. And if that kind of person doesn't exist or isn't on the scene, that it's unlikely that we're going to see that kind of high risk collective action. Yeah, that was fascinating. To me, it spoke to the need for so many different personalities, so many different gifts and everyone showing up with their gifts and their talents and their interests and their training. Because I mean, there's just such a need for all different people and all different arenas to be able to move things forward. Okay, one last question that I thought was so interesting to think about was, 
you you talk about this kind of gender essentialist idea that women's special role is in being peacemakers. And so the the UN even talks about this important role that women should play in peace deals. And so you have a really great nuanced conversation about that. I wanted to ask you that question. Is it true that women play an important role in the world in being peacemakers? True, yes or no? <laughs> Yes, women absolutely do play a, a crucial role in in peace building. I mean, conflicts that extend far beyond the Colombian conflict. And I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast the UN Security Council Resolution thirteen twenty five, which kind of gave or began this women peace and security agenda, which has since had ten resolutions. And what these resolutions note is what we've been talking about throughout this podcast, that women and girls suffer in conflict differently because of the social constructions around what it means to be a woman in their society. So the power that they have or don't have, uh, the roles that they're supposed to or not fill. And so, you know, this is 50% of of our society. and, And if these people are suffering conflict in different ways, then in order to rebuild social fabric is often the term that's used in the aftermath of these conflicts, it's key that women are involved in all stages of peace building. So that's in the negotiations for peace deals, that's having their interests represented in peace deals themselves. And that's being involved in different uh, sectors. So government, civil society, kind of different community government spaces in the aftermath of, of conflicts. What I would say, and this is what I try to discuss in the book, is that simply, you know, asking or pushing for women to be involved because women, you know, have to be involved because of some of these these broader kind of global conventions at this point isn't really enough. What I'm, you know, talking about can be illustrated well in the case of uh, a fourth organization who I discuss in the conclusion of the book and I, I foreshadowed to earlier, the Alianza de Mujeres Tejedores de Vida in the very south of the country. I won't go into too much detail, but they were an organization that mobilized during the early 2000s, very similar dynamics of conflict in the sense that they were in a paramilitary controlled area that was fighting with the FARC. They were receiving mass civilian casualties, and this organization was effectively trying to protect women's rights in this context. They were having to do so fairly clandestinely during the conflict, but up until about 2016, 2017, you know, they were able eventually to to be more public. And after the peace accords was signed, a lot of money and interest came in from the international community to get these women out in their communities to build peace, to reestablish social fabric. And women were doing this. They were making themselves much more public actors doing so. But as the conflict dynamics began to regrow or shift in their territories in the south of the country, we saw that they were receiving this immense backlash for the work that they were doing. So not only had they been targeted during the height of the conflict itself, but now, you know, 2018 onwards, they're being targeted by armed actors in a similar dynamic, perhaps, as the way Maria Eugenia was targeted for being too noisy, for, you know, doing what women shouldn't do, for making a fuss. And also, as an example to any other social organizations or NGOs or local human rights groups, that if they were to start mobilizing, that they would receive the same kind of violence. So, making an example out of them. 
And so what I mean to say with that example, and, and it's in much more detail in the book, is that absolutely women are uh, crucial when it comes to these peace-building efforts, but also that they need guarantees of security to actually do that work. A lot of the work that they do is voluntary. It's unpaid. The international community comes in with funding for six months or a year or two years, and then the funding runs out. And so thinking about the sustainability of asking women to participate in what are very dangerous roles and very dangerous jobs can't come without some of those guarantees around sustainable funding, around having specific gendered protections, which the women are asking for all the time. And having this long-term follow-up, you know, you can't end a 60-year war in one or two years and just assume that everything's going to be fine. This is a long process. It's going to take, you know, generations in order to, to really sow those seeds of peace. And so thinking about the, the kind of structural or enabling conditions that can help women to participate in this way is important, not only um, at the national level with national governments, but also with the international community who is really pushing this very important gender focus onto post-conflict reconstruction, but needs to know what that actually looks like at the grassroots level as well. And so in the book, I kind of end it with those cautionary words that absolutely women need to be involved, but just assuming that their participation is automatic or is something that they want to do because of perhaps a maternal peacefulness that they have is, is flawed. And, and they are also facing risks and have, you know, very sophisticated diagnoses of what, what it is that they need to do their job safely. And that those voices at the local level need to be heard kind of in, in those other places of power and sites of power at the national and international levels as well. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I, I want to say again how much I learned from your book. I so appreciated the history and the interpretation and the nuance and sophistication with which you discuss all of these issues. It was so much new information for me and so grateful to have you here today. Thank you so much for illuminating this issue. And again, just tremendously respect the work you're doing. Thanks so much, Dr. Julia Zolver, for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on breaking down patriarchy.